0: When you know that God is in it, you can rest in that fact. All of these trials, all of these tribulations, all of these circumstances, but David knew that God is in it. This is All Things New with Pastor Barry E. Fields. God has ordained people. Throughout history, in order to accomplish his purposes. And the temptation for us is to look at these individuals and say, What great things they did. I could never measure up to that standard. When the truth is, God often works in spite of people, in spite of circumstances, in spite of situations to make sure that nothing, nothing will take away from what he came to accomplish in this world. There is a scarlet thread of redemption running from Genesis to Revelation all throughout time about how. God has made a way to redeem his people from their sins. And in David's life, we see this especially played out. David has gone through quite a few experiences at this time. You remember he spent much of his life on the run away from Saul. And here's the end result of all that in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and beginning in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah thirty-three years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, "'You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off,' thinking, "'David cannot come in here.'" Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who were hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. David lived in the stronghold and called in the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons who built David a house. Pay attention to this verse. This is our focus. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Chapter 5 starts in the middle of what has been a cataclysmic period in David's life. You remember that after Saul had died, David had been anointed king of Judah and the kingdoms of Judah and Israel encompassed a mini civil war. So David's not in the capital. He's in Hebron. He's there for seven years and six months. And rather than turning to David, Saul's son, Ishbosheth has been anointed king. He's been made king by Abner, who's the commander of Saul's army after Saul's death. And so there's these rival kingdoms that are taking place. And now Israel's not fighting the, the Philistines. They're not fighting the Amalekites. They're not fighting outside their borders, but they're actually fighting within their borders, between Judah, and Israel, this mini civil war begins to occur. David's men defeat the men of Israel at the battle of Gibeon. And the Bible tells us that the three sons of Zariah, who is David's sister, they are described. There's Joab, who will later become the great commander of David's army. There's Abishai. And then there's someone by the name of Asahel. And Asahel is described in the Bible as swift of foot, as a wild gazelle. He's described as fast. I saw a video of Peyton Lane making a reception last night, Hancock County. Very fast. This guy is swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And what he does when Abner begins to lose is he chases after him. Now Abner's a great commander. He's a general of Saul's army. He knows what he's doing and he warns Azahel as he keeps coming after him. He says, you have to stop or I'm going to be forced to take action against you. Azahel keeps coming. He's fast. He catches up with Abner. Abner turns around, strikes him through with his spear and kills him. And now his two brothers see exactly what's happened. And they're bad dudes. Joab and Abishai pursue Abner. Abner runs to safety. He says, Joab, you've got to stop this nonsense. I don't want to hurt anybody else. He stops it. But civil war still drags on between the house of Saul, who become weaker, the house of David, who become stronger. ish Saul's son, who's the fake king, accuses Abner of infidelity to him, of unfaithfulness. And it makes Abner mad. In fact, he says, am I a dog's head of Judah? (laughs) Have you taken all these years I've served your dad? And he vows to help David overthrow the house of Saul. He says, I'm switching teams. Here's what he says in 2 Samuel 3, 9 and 10. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan." To Beersheba. Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, the fake king, is so scared out of his mind, he doesn't say another word because Abner is in front of him and Abner is a bad man with a spear. And so David and Abner begin peace talks. How can we settle all this? Abner was a trusted friend of Saul, he knew of David, certainly. And while all this is going on, Joab, David's future general, whose brother has been murdered, by Abner, finds out about this. He's away. He finds out. He goes up to Abner outside the city gates, acts like he's going to talk to him. And when he gets up close enough to him, strikes him through and kills him, takes him out. The Bible says that David, as a result of all this, had all of Israel mourn In fact, 1 Samuel 3.38 says, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? Joab trying to get revenge on behalf of his brother. But David doesn't react the same way Joab does. In fact, he leaves revenge in the hands of the Lord. He says, I'll leave it there. There's a part of us that can understand what Joab is going through. If somebody killed your brother and you had a chance to get him back, would you? not an illogical question, but there's a difference in the Bible between revenge and justice. You can get revenge, but only God can grant justice. And David is one who seeks the Lord, pauses, and says Joab's punishment will be in the Lord's hands. I saw a post not too long ago, a friend that I had in a former church who has kind of had some difficult circumstances and who's gone away from the Lord, and they said some, some choice words, but they they basically said, you know, farewell to what God says. Vengeance is mine. You know people who live their life like that. World does one to you, do one back to them, to get revenge for a wrong deed but is it really justice? There's a tribe, legendary tribe in Africa that practices something called drowning man trial. Here's how it works. They believe that the only way to end grief is to save a life. And so if someone is murdered, what they will do is they will make you stand outside all night till the trial ends. Once the trial ends, they will put you out in a boat, out in the water. They will throw you into the sea with your hands tied. And the family who's been accused, victimized by this person who's the murderer, has to decide, does this person live or die? And here's how they decide. They have to reach in and pull them out. The argument is this. If you let the individual drown... You get revenge on this earth. But if you pull the individual back up, you take away a sorrow by displaying grace. The idea is the only way to really get at your grief is to remove the sorrow through an act of grace. David understands something. Joab gets revenge, but he doesn't get justice. Justice only happens... On God's time, in God's terms. And so God has the final say, whether that's Rachel Denhaller standing him before the US Olympic team coach, telling him everything that he had did that he has sentenced away. Or that's my former friend Matt Phelps, who convicted murder in North Carolina, standing before this past weekend, his family who has been victimized by him. Brutally killed his wife, God will have the final say. Can you leave it in the hands of the Lord? The scene moves on. Ishbosheth, the fake king, the son of Saul, his courage fails when he finds out that Abner's dead and his brothers, or half-brothers, murder him and they, they bring his head to David. It's, it's a violent time in the history of Israel. And David reacts the same way when he reacted when the Amalekite confessed that he had helped end Saul's life. He says, you've touched somebody who's in the anointed family of the Lord and he knocks them out. And it's only at this point... On the run for 15 years, then seven years as king of one kingdom, but not yet king of the other, that the remaining elders of Israel gather around David, and they anoint him as king. The Bible says this. He was first king of Judah, beginning at age 30, and then he's king of Israel at about 37 and a half. He reigns 40 years in total. And the Bible tells us this in 2 Samuel 5. And we're getting at something here. David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And then 2 Samuel 5, 12, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. So what are some of the problems that David faces over the years? Just to recap those. First of all, his father and brothers ignore him, lines up all the guys who's going to be the king of Israel, and Samuel says, don't you have anybody else left? And he said, oh yeah, we got the ruddy kid out in the field, but you don't want him. Samuel says, bring him out. The king who he served, Saul, who had helped defeat Goliath on his behalf, gets mad at him, tries to murder at him, throws a spear not once but twice. It's not the best way to win friends and influence people or show hospitality, His wife, future wife, is sent to spy on him by Saul. And then when that doesn't work, she's stolen from him. So his wife is literally taken from him for a period of time. His best friend Jonathan dies. And his frenemy king, Saul, comes after him in this passive, aggressive manner of, I love you, but I want to kill you. Maybe there's a, a type of representation of marriage in there. I don't know. it anyway, it's not a, it's not a healthy relationship. His country is taken from him. Ishbosheth grabs Israel, says, you can't have it, even though God told you it was yours. He's forced into civil war. His orders are disobeyed. He told Joab not to kill Abner. Joab does it anyway. His life, by any stretch of the imagination, when you hear of David's life, you hear, oh, he defeated Goliath. You can slay your giants too. David's life, if you look at it from that point onward, looks like a train wreck. But there's something that David understands. When you know that God is in it, Listen to what it says. David knew that the Lord had established his kingdom over Israel. When you know that God is in it, you can rest in that fact. All of these trials, all of these tribulations, all of these circumstances, but David knew that God is in it. You want to know the secret to getting things done? It really starts with asking the right question. A lot of times in the church, for example, we'll ask, do we have the people? Do we have the resources? Do we have the financial reserves? Do we have the willpower? All of those are not unimportant questions. In fact, you should examine those on each of those levels. They are not unimportant questions, but they are also not the most important question. And the most important question is, is God in it? And if he's in it, Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter the obstacles that are thrown your way. He will provide. The Bible says, despite what David went through, despite all of the armies against him, God had anointed him to be king over Israel and nothing would stop that. And if we would ever decide that this is what God has called us to do, to live each day for him. He says, I have put the keys of the kingdom in your hands. The fruit of the spirit is yours. If you will claim it by faith and live it out. David isn't asking these kind of questions. He's not asking if he can defeat these guys. He's not asking if he can survive long enough to wait them out. He's not asking, do I have enough money to start a capital campaign so I can wage war? All he's asking is, God, are you in it? And if God is in it, David's good. I don't know what happened to our faith. (laughs) To where somehow we got the idea that this God we served would only work if we would let him. We put him in his box, this God who just holds back, can't do anything without you giving him permission Our God's in love with you. Send him a valentine. He's Santa Claus. The Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. It says nothing can thwart his purposes. He says, as I have purposed, so shall it stand. And when we get in on the promises of God and we claim them by faith, The Bible says there is nothing that can stop it. He is loving, but he is righteous. He is just and he is angry with the cause. And so in the middle of that, maybe we ought to stop asking, where should I be in life? Or can I get out of my circumstances? Or is there a better place for me to keep dreaming on? Instead, maybe we ought to ask, is God in what we're doing? Am I living for him? And if that's true, then follow David's example. Look at what he does. He does the best he can with what he's got, where he's at, for the glory of God. And I would submit to you, if we want to know and do God's will, whatever your circumstance, whatever your situation, that's what God's calling out of you to, to do the best you can with what you've got, where you're at, for the glory of God. We talk about doing the best we can. You know, God deserves the very best of what we have. David will say at one point, I will not offer anything that costs me nothing. In other words, I won't place anything before God that I didn't have to sacrifice in order to give it. Somebody said, how much should you give? Should you measure it by a tithe? Should you measure it by a paycheck or whatever? And they said, give until it hurts. (laughs) Give until it impacts you. Can I just say something to you? God is worthy of your A-game. And God will not build his church on leftovers, and he certainly won't build his church on spare time and pocket change. We have so many people doing so many activities. Man, if you don't show up to practices, your coach won't let you play, but you can get away with anything in the church. Shouldn't the house of God have the highest standards? He said, Michael Jordan, years ago, he was always known for wearing those suits in his commercials. You would always see him in a suit when he was going out. I think he's let up since his retirement. But somebody asked him one time, they said, why do you always wear these suits whenever you go out? Why do you always dress up? Here's the answer he gave. He said, there's some kid out there who's seen me play on TV, and if he shows up in person, it might be the only time he ever sees me in real life. And I want to make the best impression that I possibly can. You think there might be people in our neighborhood, in our sphere of influence, where it may be the only time we have an opportunity to show and to share who God is with them. David gives the very best of what he has, and he does it wholeheartedly, as to the Lord, not unto men. He's not worried about what his reputation is. He's not worried about what the people are telling him to do. He's just concerned with pleasing the Lord. He says, do the best you can. With what you've got. Not looking to what others have, not playing this game of comparison, not saying my looks are different than theirs or my talents are different than theirs. God's given you what He's given you for a reason. Not running someone else's race, but running your race in your context, in your place. David had to be king over Israel, but you've got a different responsibility. And your responsibility is just as important before God. Doing the best you can with what you've got. And then hear this. Where you're at. David knew what Israel needed because God had told him. Knowing what your community needs. Not that we can meet every need, but knowing that we can look to needs that no one else is meeting. And David says, here's the sake of of all of this. In the end of verse 12, don't miss this. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. It wasn't about David. Can I just say something to you in the most loving way that I possibly can? And I mean this in love. We have to repeat that a couple of times. The hard thing is coming. People come up to me with what they prefer all the time. You know, I prefer this, this music or this dress or this time or this way or, or, or whatever. And can I be perfectly honest with you in a way that is just up front? I really don't care what you prefer. Honest before the Lord, I, I don't care what you prefer. I do care about what you think will help us reach the most people. And I really care about what you think will help us remain true to God's word. I care an awful lot about that. But when we get into preferences, and we make church about us rather than about Jesus, David's secret here is he knew that God had a greater plan. It wasn't about him. It was for his people, Israel. That's the reason we're going to Crossroads in an hour, because God wants us to reach that community. That's the reason we built this building, so that people could come in and use it so they could be a blessing to them. It's the reason we did the renovation across the street. We want young people to be raised up for Christ, so that everything we do might be done well for the glory of God. David understands two things in his life. Mark these down. Number one, he understood that God placed him where he placed them. You know something about you. God knows exactly where you're at. He knows why he has you in Hancock County. He knows why he has you in another county. And if you would ever wake up and realize that church isn't just something that you do every Sunday morning, although you need to be here, but if that gospel light switch would go off for you and you would say, God has a purpose for me every day, that I might live for him wherever he's placed me. That's the difference. He understood that God placed him where he placed him. And then number two, He understood that it wasn't about him. Brothers and sisters, it is not about you. It's not about me. It's about the glory of God. We've got to keep that in mind. David understands something about this anointing and this exaltation that God has given him. It isn't for him, but for the sake of his people, Israel. It's about the glory of God. Isn't it interesting today when somebody accomplishes something great, what do we do? We try to find out more about them. We try to get their biography. We try to contact somebody so maybe we can get to know them. There used to be a day in this world where if somebody had a message from the Lord or if somebody did something that was well-known, people would begin to ask, why has God brought them here? What is God trying to teach us? We've gotten so far off from that. David cares more about what God thinks than what the people think. He simply wants to please the Lord. He simply wants a knowledge of God. Leonard Ravenhill put it this way. He said, I'd rather have 10 people that want God than 10,000 who want to play church. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. I'm going to grab his word Every day and be in it and proclaim the goodness and the glory of the Lord. And if I'm not sure what God has called me to do, I'm going to read his book. I'm going to commit to be all in for Christ. Because brothers and sisters, if we are to succeed in this experiment that we are in, it's going to take all of us working together. Everybody giving sacrificially. Everybody serving. Everybody inviting. Everybody seeking God with their whole heart. And if God would ever have people who would seek him with everything they have and make it not about them, knowing that God desires to give good things for his children and he desires to make his kingdom spread, oh, what a church that would be. But you have to care more about what God wants than what you want. Because if you're there, And he calls us to do the best we can with what we have, where we're at, for his glory. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at barryefields.com.